And hello, I'm Pastor Jim. If you're a guest here today, I want you to know who I am. Uh, and uh, just before we get into the message today, uh, I'm going to ask Bill Van Bruggen if Bill would come, and we're going to just talk together up here for a moment or two. Welcome Bill as he comes. How you doing, Bill? <laughs> How am I doing? Yeah. Wait, I'm doing I forgot good. the microphone that you're going to need. It's laying right there. Okay. It's nice to have good help. <laughs> How am I doing? How You're am I doing, doing good so I'm far. Doing good. I'm doing right, good. Right, I'm pretty right. pleased with myself. I yeah. lost a few pounds, <laughs> okay. and, uh, and I got up early, took Lori to church. Great. Well, washed to, my truck. You're off to a good start. Put my tires right. okay. black on, All right. coals. Wow. How long have you been up? So. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good, and now I'm sitting okay. here with you. All so. right. Okay. Well, one of the small groups that we're going to be starting is called Step Into Freedom. And uh, it's, you know, the scripture calls us as, if, as Christ followers to lifelong growing, lifelong transformation. We never stop growing. The Lord never stops digging down deep inside under the surface of our lives till the day of the resurrection. One of those new small groups that we have, are introducing this time is called Step Into Freedom. And it is an eight-week course that's designed to help us continue to develop the skills for living life. It's a Christ-centered focus, um, and it's, I would say it's like a, a catalyst. It's a spiritual reboot for any and every follower of Christ, for any and every person. And the reason I've asked Bill to come up here today is because we, for the last several weeks, have had... Um, two pilot groups, which are also groups in which future leaders of Steps in, Step Into Freedom are being trained. Uh, and Bill has been in the men's group. We have a women's group and a men's group. And uh, Bill's been in the men's group, <laughs> okay? Uh, and, all right. So, just to clarify. All right, okay, all right. But, uh, so I just had a couple questions I wanted to ask Bill. Uh, when you were first approached about this course, getting into Step Into Freedom, what was your reaction? What were your thoughts? Well, it was twofold. Um, one is it's always, you know, hesitation. Because when you take this kind of a step, you're uncertain where you're going. The other side of it was excitement because in the past, I've taken some journeys where, where uh, you do some, you do some discovering and it's produced fruit so it's twofold yeah uh, i found it to be twofold uh, as i considered it okay all right and then bill maybe elaborate a little bit on this what what kind of experience has this been for you uh in step into freedom well it's uh it's helped me to kind of get back on the journey um and as we work through the weeks, each, each lesson, um, it helps us to kind of get the shovel out, okay. all right, yeah. and, and we dig. But, but as much of, of the shovel that God uses, he uses the same shovel for grace. So, so as you get challenged in areas, right, his word is there, there's lots of word, lots of the scripture involved, so it... Uh, it really helps you to kind of move past some of those challenges that, that kind of quietly seek in your heart. As I was, uh, as I was thinking about 
this in, in, in this morning, I was thinking about that word entangled, and I said there's a scripture about entangled. And what happens is, is that uh, in Hebrews 12 it says, therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so I guess that's chapter 11, so I'll read chapter 11 too. Uh, now by faith, now by faith, now by faith, <laughs> now by faith. That 11th chapter is a long one, too. Now yeah. by faith, now by faith, put right. to death. That's yeah. not great. Now by faith, yeah. now by faith, now by faith, now by faith. Okay, then he goes to 12, and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those are all, that's the faith chapter, let's, let us throw off everything that hinders um, the sin that so easily entangles us. That's good. And let us run with the perseverance and the, ra and the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So I think that when we go through um, a class like this, it helps us with those entangled parts of our lives. One is to even identify them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then two, what do I do with them, mm -hmm. right? And as most men, we like to bury them. Mm -hmm. You know, our hearts like to go up into the high country, yeah. right, and be elusive, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, probably a lot of the men are already heading up to the high country <laughs> as I'm talking. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. of, of course, if you're if you're struggling with with you know some kind of a, a major addiction, major struggle, challenging day by day, of course, run and sign up. It'll be great for that. It'll be great for that. You'll find guys to lock arms with and lean on yeah. and, mm -hmm. and discover some of the things that's, that, that's got you entangled. But maybe if it's more insidious than that, sneaky, I looked up insidious, it means okay. sneaky. All right. I don't just know, I had to look up, I, I said, <laughs> I said uh, typed in uh, what definition of insidious. Oops, how do you spell insidious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's sneakier than that. Yeah. It's insidious. Yes. <laughs> People think that's, I'm really intelligent. You know, that's and a good word to put in, Bill. That's a good one. Thanks. Thank yeah. you for that. I feel good. Uh, um, because as a person, a lot of times I'm insidious. I, I'm a poser. I like to put that best look forward, you know? See how my one leg is higher than the other, <laughs> right? You, you right. want to strike a pose, yeah. right? Yeah. And we do that a lot of times in our spiritual life, especially us, us Christians have been around and living this thing for a while. We know what we're supposed to be doing. And we find ourselves entangled, but we really can't share it because, boy, if they knew that about me, that it's going to blow my yeah. image, yeah. right? Yeah. As I was getting ready for church this morning and ironing my wife's clothes, <laughs> I, I, uh, I thought to myself, I'm a, oh, I'm going to be interviewed this morning. Uh, you know, so I ironed my shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and then what I did is I ironed my jeans. Oh, wow. Is wow. that crazy? Yeah. I never ironed my yeah. jeans. Why? Because I want people to think of me in a certain way. Yeah. Right? And that is looking my best being my best. That act runs out in our life in so many different ways. So what this, what this uh, class, this men's group has helped me do is to kind of break through that mm -hmm. and kind of get down to those issues in my heart that go, you know what, that's not really healthy. Yeah. And all yeah. of a sudden I realize, hey, that guy's sharing something 
that's how I feel, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, so that helps me. So then we link arms and we have understanding and we read scripture and we kind of move into that area yeah. and, uh, and have some discovery and some, and some healing. So it's, Bill, that's great. Now, one other question. I think this is an important one. Um, would you recommend this then to, to everyone? Young men, for the older men's men, group, I'd, I'd recommend it for every man. Yeah. you know, yep. um, but I would, I would recommend it because I think that all of us have something to learn, mm-hmm. right? If we're, if we, if we really think, if we really think that that we don't have any issues, you have an issue, right? <laughs> That's true. And, uh, and and I grew That's up true. in a generation that when you're, you know, your mother would say, Billy shame on you, and then fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. All right, lots of blanks there. And it'll be like, shame, mm-hmm. right? Shame is the gift that just keeps giving, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it never bears fruit, if you ever notice. That's true. When you have shame, it it's never really true. bears fruit, yeah, right? That's true. And it's like, shame on you. It's like, well, shame on you for shaming me, right? I yeah, mean, right. I mean, yeah. We, we need to get past that. Yeah. And shame yeah. is never invited. It mm-hmm. never knocks. Mm-hmm. It just barges right in. It mm-hmm. has a standing invitation, it seems, right. in our lives. And it runs through. So I think we all can struggle with that. And if we can get past that as, as believers, right, um, not perfect believers, but as believers, we'll stand to, to strengthen our, our stand yeah. and then in turn be able to lock arms with other men and move forward. Yeah. In turn, strengthening the church and moving forward. And in turn, as people come in, full of the dust of this world, yeah. being able to right. That's good. Being able to yeah. connect. So it has ripple effects. It does. It does. Yeah. It does. Bill, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, and um, and I'm grateful for what the Lord's doing in your life. Thank you. Amen. And uh, all of our small groups, uh, you can sign up in the lobby today, uh, including Step Into Freedom. If you want more information for that, you can talk to Bill. There is some information, uh, some pamphlets at the uh, desk today, too, out there, that or tables that you can uh, check into. So, all right. Um, so if you're a guest here today, we are working our way through the story of Jesus according to one of his biographers by the name of Luke. And Luke was a first century doctor. He was a historian. He was most likely raised and educated in the ancient university city of Antioch, which was about 500 miles north of Jerusalem. But through missionaries, uh, the word about Jesus came to Antioch. And Luke embraced the faith and became a very devout follower of Jesus And then, in about um, 56 to 58 A.D., Luke had two years to spend down in Israel, right? uh, What he did was he spent those two years interviewing scores of eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus, who had listened to what he taught. They saw his miracles. Many of them were healed by him and experienced his grace. And it's those stories that Luke is recording in his book, which makes this book of Luke 
a very remarkable book and a book that no person should ever ignore. So we're in chapter 10 this morning. And there are three paragraphs that we're going to look at in chapter 10. And Luke arranges these three paragraphs with a purpose in mind. The first one, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. That's in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. So let me summarize it. I can't read all those verses for you. Luke is about two years into the three years of Jesus' ministry. Jesus in chapter 9 has just told the disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer and where he's going to be crucified. And Jesus, wanting to get his message out as far and as fast as possible in these final months, he calls 72 of his disciples, he pairs them up two by two, and he sends them out to at least 36 villages or towns as he makes his way from the northern part, Galilee, around Samaria and Perea, and then finally down into Judea and Jerusalem. Now, he sends his disciples ahead to tell the people of Israel to get ready to welcome the long-promised hope of Israel. The prophets of Israel had for centuries been telling about the day when God's Messiah, God's anointed one, was literally going to come to Jerusalem, or he's going to live on this earth, walk into Jerusalem, and bring the salvation of God, bring God's kingdom. In fact, in this chapter, Jesus says in verse 24, I tell you that many prophets and kings in your history have longed for this day to see what you see and hear what you hear, but you are the guys that are going to get that opportunity to literally see Jesus. So he sends them to the villages, telling them, now prepare your hearts because Jesus is going to show up here in a few days. And to give evidence that he is the Messiah, Jesus gave those 72 disciples the very same power he had to heal, to work miracles, to, and uh, to bring hope to their lives. And he gave them this message. The message was reduced, reduced to one word. It was the word peace. When he, says, when he says, when you go into those cities, you preach peace to them. What kind of peace? Peace with God and peace with others. Now, that's why Jesus came into the world. That's the heart of his message. He came to bring peace. And you know, peace is a relationship word. And we live in a world where there's a shortage of peace. We live in a world where there's an awful lot of struggling relationships, where there's a lot of just flat-out broken relationships, even hostile relationships. That characterizes this world, and it characterized the world then, too. Jesus came to tell us that the kingdom of God that he was bringing would turn this world upside down and restore peace and make peace dominant over hostility and hatred and all those things that, that break relationships. He wanted, to bring, he wanted to bridge the relationships of people with God and people with one another. And then he tells his disciples, when you go into a town and the town welcomes you and welcomes the message you're bringing, well, you stay there in that town for a while, you share the message and do the ministry and then let them know that I'm going to be showing up there in a few days. They'll get to see me. But when you go into a town, if that town rejects you, and the message about me, that I want you to go out into the streets, I want you to go out into the town square, 
I want you to shake off the dust from your shoes as a warning to that town. And then I want you to tell them this. It will be better on the day of, of judgment for the city of Sodom. Now, the city of Sodom was that ancient city way back in the early chapters of Genesis that had become so, had gone so far beyond the bounds of all morality, decency. It was full of injustice. It was full of hatred. People were, it was horrible, horrible city, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus says, tell that town that it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom than for a village that rejects me. For a population in any of the towns of Israel that reject me, it's going to be more difficult on the day of judgment. Now, that sounds pretty harsh. And you know, a lot of times we probably don't even realize maybe that Jesus would ever say something that direct. That Jesus would ever say something that stern. But that's exactly what he said. And so, why did he say that? Well, a couple things. Number one, we have to remember that these are the people of Israel to whom the prophets told about the, day, about the coming of the Messiah. And now he was actually here. And so to reject him is a serious deal. But the question, it raises the question, why would the people of Israel reject him? Who would want to reject him? Well, they had their own opinions about the kingdom of God and the Messiah. And the thing they didn't like, they did not like Jesus' message of peace. Because they thought that the Messiah's message was going to be more like this. Israel, get ready for war. Take up arms. We're going to defeat Rome. Because Israel was filled with anger. And Israel wanted to revenge and trample down their enemies just like their enemies had been trampling down on them. And, who, and this Jesus, the reports they got about him, this Jesus, this so-called Messiah, he was talking about going to Jerusalem to be killed by those very authorities who were oppressing them. So what kind of a Messiah is that? What kind of a Savior is that? Really what this boils down to is they did not want the message of a Savior who was going to a cross because it made no sense to them. So they rejected him. And so why is it so serious to reject Jesus and the message of the cross? Jesus answers that himself in verse 16. He says this, first of all, he says, he who listens to you, as he sent his disciples out, the 72, as they listen to you, tell about me. Well, he who listens to you, they're listening to me. So listening, Jesus puts a lot of emphasis upon listening, considering who he is, not just flat out casting him off as irrelevant. So what does it mean to really listen to Jesus? Well, if Luke were here, I think Luke would answer, this is one way. He would say, take a close look, read, study what I have carefully written and documented all along the way about the real history of Jesus Christ. What he said, the miracles that he did, I've written them down for you. I have documented them. Their exact place and time in history. Read that, listen to that, grasp that. 
And then Luke would say this. These things really happened. I am not writing in the genre of myth and legend. I am writing history. And I am writing about the Savior who went to the cross to defeat sin, hate, revenge, the vicious cycle that destroys this world, and of a Savior who rose from the dead to give us His power to conquer these things and show the world a new way to live in peace in His kingdom. And then in verse number 16, Jesus continues, He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying to reject Jesus, to reject him, is to reject God. To ignore investigating what Luke and what the other writers of the scriptures have written about him is to refuse to listen, is to take your hands and put them over your ears like this and shut it out. Now Jesus has come to our village this morning. He's come to us in and through the eyewitnesses about whom Luke is writing, telling us who Jesus is. So the question for us this morning, the same question that was put to those towns, do you reject him or do you welcome him? Do you believe that the cross that Jesus was setting his mind to go and die on, do you think that was worth it? Or was that a waste of Jesus' time? Have you really considered the cross of Jesus, what it's all about? And I'm going to ask that to Christians that have been in church for 50 years or 20 years. You may have been in church every Sunday of your life. Have you really considered what this cross is all about? Sometimes we can get immune to it. We hear it so much. We can forget about it. And then there's this, that leads to the second reason. Uh, to reject Jesus is to ignore the cross. But what, was that? what happened on that cross? On the cross, Jesus, for your sake and for mine, and for every person on this planet. Jesus became the most abused person in the history of the world. The most abused. He was abused emotionally in a merciless kind of way. He was completely ridiculed. He was, he was abused mentally, verbally. At the foot of the cross, they were mocking him, saying, if you're really the son of God, they were, they were, they were questioning his identity. That's one of the worst things that can happen to a person, is to sh try to shred their identity. That's what they were trying to do to Jesus. He was sexually abused. He was stripped naked in front of everybody that was standing there at the cross. He was abused spiritually, for sure. That was the deepest part of it. Because the scriptures say that he who knew no sin, he who had never committed a sin, became sin for you and I. He took your sins and mine. So who was it that was abusing Jesus? Well, you know, the answer to that question is sort of tough. Uh, we did. We abused him. I did. Because what put him on that cross? Your sins and my sins. We abused, we are the abusers of Jesus, our sins. 
the cross, but, but he went there because the cross is the only place where our sins can be forgiven and our wounds can be healed. This is what Peter says about that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He says that we were redeemed, we were purchased by the high price of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus died not only to forgive us our sins, but he also died to heal us of our wounds from being sinned against. And you know, the worst day in Jesus' life when he was on earth, when he was in his humanity, the worst day by far was Good Friday. (laughs) That was a horrible day. He hung on the cross for six hours. And the physical pain is not the big deal, although that was excruciating. It's all that other pain, emotional, mental, spiritual, that he took in bearing our sins. But he he, Jesus went to the cross because he wants you and I to know that whatever your worst day is, whatever your worst day has been, or whatever your worst day is ever going to be in this world, and we're all going to have a worst day, but Jesus took every human being's worst day and all the suffering and all the woundedness and all the sorrow of it, he took it to that cross with him. Why? So that you would know, what was Jesus' best day? Jesus' best day came Easter Sunday morning. And life conquered all the pain and all the sorrow and all the wounds, everything. Jesus came out of that grave. He conquered. Life conquers in Christ. Jesus wants you to know that he took your worst day to that cross so that you have the promise that your best day is still coming. And I think that's important news for you and I to know, that we have a future. And no matter what's happened to you in your life, that's why Jesus went to the cross, and that's why we cannot make light of what he did on that cross. It is the greatest gift by far that any human being has ever given to you and I. And it was given by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, We come to the second paragraph, because in verses 25 to 37, Jesus records a conversation between a lawyer and Jesus that explains how the power of the cross transforms a person into that person of peace. It's called the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in verses 30 to 37. Let me read this real quick. It says, a man was going down, well, let, me, let me start here with this. Let me set up the context. They were traveling toward the cross. A lawyer comes up to Jesus. He has a trick question for Jesus. He wants to get Jesus to say something that's going to discredit him in the eyes of the Jewish people. So he asks, what must, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus simply says, well, what does the word of God say? What's the law say? And this lawyer, knowing the scriptures very well, he gives the answer that every Jewish person would give to that question. It was called the Shema the heart of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said you got A plus on that. You, you did it. You got it. Now, if you really go and live that, then you're going to be good. You're going to be fine. But then the lawyer thought that Jesus had walked into his trap because the Jews had a particular definition of what that word neighbor meant. For them, a neighbor was fellow Jews, the the, the nation of Israel. And this lawyer knew that Jesus had been breaking ethnic boundaries, that Jesus had been reaching out to Gentiles, and that Jesus had been mingling with 
whom they considered to be the undesirables. And so the lawyer thought that he could play to the racial hatred of the crowd. He could play to the hatred that the Jewish people had for their Roman oppressors, the hatred they had for the tax collectors and the Samaritans. And so he presses Jesus with one other question. And he says, uh, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? But instead of giving a direct answer, and Jesus, he would, the lawyer was expecting Jesus to say, well, you, gotta love, you need to love everybody, Gentiles, Romans, everybody. Jesus didn't say it that way, though. He told us a great story. And it's verses 30 to 37. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now that priest and that Levite, these were, these were holy people. The reason they walked by was because the Old Testament, some of the laws said that if you touch a dead body, you're contaminated. So they just, they didn't go over there. They assumed the guy was dead. They didn't even check it out because they kept their rules above the law of mercy and love. Anyway, but then there was a Samaritan and the Jews hated the Samaritans. You know that. They had horrible, horrible hatred for each other. But there's a Samaritan. That's, it's a wonder that Jesus, Jesus tells good stories. He had everybody's attention right here when he threw a Samaritan into the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to, the inn, to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for extra expense you may have. Which of these three, Jesus asked the lawyer, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law was sort of trapped in his own scheme because there was no other answer he could give except, well, it was the one who had the mercy. Okay. Jesus gets his point across. Now, coming to Jesus who bore our sins on the cross and receiving his forgiveness of sins empowers us to have his heart of forgiveness. You see, there was hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. This particular Samaritan would have grown up in a climate that bred hatred for the Jews. But this Samaritan, in Jesus' story, he had a forgiving heart. He had let all the bitterness that he had held toward the Jewish people, he had let that go. And so he actually willed and then acted for the good of this Jewish man, knowing that if the, if the roles were exchanged, probably this Jewish man would have left him laying in the ditch, unattended. But the Samaritan rose above all that. This Samaritan represents the new kind of person that Jesus will bring into the world in his kingdom through the power of his forgiveness. Because his forgiveness empowers us to have a heart of forgiveness and peace toward all others. A love that is greater than any hatred and racism and prejudice and that wills and seeks the good of every person without exception. Now, that doesn't mean that a criminal does not come to justice. But you know what it does mean? 
is that you and I would wish that criminal, no matter what crime he has or she has committed, our deepest will for them would be that they could come to a place of repentance and redemption and find God. Because to hold hate is destructive. Hate is what motivated the evil in that person to hurt others. And if we hold hate, we're going to hurt other people too. Hate hurts. It hurts us and it hurts the people around us. So the lawyer learned a lot that day. Who was his neighbor? It's the person who had the mercy. So let me ask you a couple questions. What is in your heart today toward people? Well, your answer, mercy. Then that's a great answer. And sometimes, you know what, it's, easy, it's easier to have mercy for the people of the world, okay? Because that's a very general, okay? But let me ask you another question. What is in your heart today toward the one person who has hurt you most in this world? What's in your heart toward that person? Is it mercy? Is it that that person would somehow come to repentance, genuine repentance, come to God and find forgiveness? Now, loving like that and having mercy, mercy is not minimizing or forgetting the hurt that was done against you. That is not what we're talking about here. Love is not subjecting yourself to that unsafe, unsafe person to be hurt again and again and again and again. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But it's what is the deepest attitude of our heart ultimately toward that person. Because if it's not mercy, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to drift over toward hate. And hate is probably what led that person that hurt you to hurt you. If you don't have mercy, that person is still hurting you. Let me ask, you this, let me ask this question this way. Is there a person you desire to see burn in hell? Now, I remember years ago when the Oklahoma City bombing took place. Uh, Jill and I were sitting on the couch watching that, and you might remember the picture, and this, is, this was in newspapers all across the country, the picture of this fireman came out. He was holding a little two-year-old blonde girl like this, walking out of that blown-up building. I think there was, a nursery, there was a nursery daycare center on the second floor. Tim, Tim McVeigh, who planned the blowing up of that building, he knew that there was a nursery full of children in that building on the second floor. He knew it, but he went ahead and blew it up anyway. And I remember saying to Jill when I was sitting on the couch, I was really angry about that. And I said, I said pretty much, that guy needs to go to hell, <laughs> okay? That's where he belongs. He needs hell. And at that moment, I meant it. Um, but you know what? I had this uh, sort of reflection, on, I reflected on that sometime later, and you know, I, I got to thinking that what if I'm in heaven someday and uh, I'm there worshiping God, singing his praises with millions of other Christians, and, and all of a sudden I look across there and I see 
I see this guy named Timothy McVeigh. I see Timothy McVeigh there. And I walk up, to, I walk over to Timothy and say, how, how did you get in here? What are you doing here? And then Timothy is going to, and then I even run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, come on. Do you let anybody into this place? Jesus says, yeah. <laughs> Anyone who comes to me. And then I go back to Tim, Tim McVeigh and I say, and Tim tells me, when I was in prison, I heard the gospel. I received it. I asked for forgiveness. Now, I don't know if that ever happened. I hope it did for Tim. I hope it does. But all I know is this, that redemption is possible for every and every, any, any and every human being. And here's the thing, and this is an important statement. You know what? You cannot follow Jesus to the cross if you hang on to your hatred. Because Jesus went to the cross to give even the worst of sinners the opportunity to repent and come into the kingdom of God. And then the third picture, and we're going to wrap it up here. Mary and Martha, and this is very short, uh, in verses 10 to 38. Uh, one final scene that Luke gives us. Summarize it. Jesus is in the home of two dear friends, uh, actually three, the sisters Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. They're preparing a meal. There's a crowd of people in there that day. Jesus is in the living room, or whatever they would have called it back then, teaching. Martha is out in the kitchen just working like crazy to get the meal ready for all these guests. And she's really upset because her sister Mary, who would normally, that would be her role in that day and in that, in that world, her role would have been with her in the kitchen. That's where the women were in those days, in the kitchen. They're getting the meal ready, okay? Uh, but here's Mary. She's out with the men sitting with the men, listening to the rabbi, listening to Jesus teach. And Jesus wasn't doing anything about it. And Jesus knew that she was breaking one of the, one of the boundaries of the social setting of that day. He knew that. Uh, but he, he, let her, he let it be. In fact, Mary comes running up to him and says, Lord, look, this isn't right. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. I need some help here. And I think what was underneath it, too, is... She's not where she's supposed to be. Uh, but here's what Jesus said to Martha. He said, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Few things are really necessary. In fact, there's only one thing that's most necessary. And Mary has chosen what is better. And that won't be taken away from her. And so what was Mary doing? Well, I think Mary becomes one of the most brilliant examples to both men and women of what it means to really listen to Jesus. She was sitting in there absorbing every word she could get from Jesus, about Jesus, about the cross, about, about whatever he was saying. She was soaking that in like a sponge. And Luke wrote this record, the third book of the New Testament. He wrote it so that anyone and everyone has the opportunity to know about Jesus, to listen to him. And so I want to, what I want to encourage this morning is this, that every one of you personally 
get into that gospel of Luke with all, jump into it like you'd swamp, jump into the deep end of a swimming pool. Get in there. Swim. There's enough water in there for you to swim in the rest of your life. Meditate on it. Take notes. What, what, is, the message that, what is the message of Jesus? What is that cross all about? What is the resurrection about? So three action steps. Number one, are you here today searching Jesus out? If so, two things I would say. Listen and learn. You can have a Bible. If you don't have one, at the information desk, we have some. You can just have one today. Read that Gospel of Luke. Here's a couple websites you can go to also to get a little more information about the Gospel of Luke. TheEnduringWord.com and then uh, TheBibleProject.com. Jot those down. Check those out. And it's going to help you get into the Gospel of Luke. Number two, are you here this morning and ready to receive Jesus into your life? You feel the Holy Spirit, you feel God drawing you to him this morning in this room. You want to welcome him into your life. Then the word is repent. How do I repent? I come to him and say, Lord, I know you bore my sins on that cross. I believe it. I accept that. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and heal me of my wounds and And I I surrender my life to you. You pray that prayer. Jesus Christ will keep his end of the bargain. Number three, follower of Jesus. I would say that what we must do as followers of Jesus is examine our hearts for anything that is in there that is not mercy. A judgmental spirit, a critical spirit, holding a grudge against somebody, wishing somebody to go to hell, (laughs) any of that kind of stuff. If there's anything in there that is anything other than mercy, then we need to bring that to Jesus and to the cross and continue to grow deeper and and further in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for your truth. Lord, I pray that we will be established in your word. Thank you, Lord, for leading Luke to give us this written record of who you are. And now, Lord, we take it seriously, we receive it, and we act upon it so that you become our personal redeemer, the one that we've given our lives to, who we come to know personally. Lord, reveal your presence to us in a new way in the closing moments of this worship gathering. And we give you praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen.